0: Chapter Twenty Seven of the Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, mikevendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Twenty Seven. Carl wished that Adelaide Banner had never come from Droullemont to study domestic science. He felt that he was a sullen brute, but he could not master his helpless irritation as he walked with Adelaide and Gertie Cowles through Central Park on a snowy Sunday afternoon of December. Adelaide assumed that one remained in the state of mind called Girolamin all one's life, that however famous he might be, the son of Oscar Ericson was not sufficiently refined from his Cowles of the big house on the hill, though he might improve under Cowles' influences. He was still a person who had run away from Plato, But that assumption was far less irritating than one into which Adelaide threw all of her faded yearning that gertie and he were in love Adelaide kept repeating with coy slyness isn't it too bad you two have me in the way and don't mind poor me auntie will turn her back any time you want her to and gertie merely blushed murmuring don't be a silly at eighteenth street Adelaide announced now i must leave you children i am going over to the metropolitan museum of art i do love to see art pictures i've always wanted to now be as good as you can you two gertie was mechanical about replying oh don't run away eddie dear oh yes you two will miss an old maid like me terribly and adelaide was off a small sturdy undistinguished figure with an underlying loyalty to gertie and to the idea of marriage carl looked at her bobbing back with wrinkles in her cloth jacket over the shoulders as she melted into the crowd of glossy fur-trimmed new Yorkers he comprehended her goodness her devotion he sighed if she'd only stop this hinting about gertie and me he was repentant of his irritation and said to gertie who was intimately cuddling her arm into his adelaide's an awful good kid sorry she had to go gertie jerked her arm away averted her profile grated if you miss her so much perhaps you'd better run after her really i wouldn't interfere not for worlds why hello gertie what seems to be the matter don't i detect a chill in the atmosphere so sorry you've gotten refined on me which is going to suggest some lowbrow amusement like tea at the casino. Well, you ought to know a lady doesn't. Oh, now, Gertie, dear, not lady. I don't think you're a bit nice, Carl Erickson. I don't to be making fun of me when I'm serious. And Why haven't you been up to see us? Mama and Ray have spoken of it, and you've only been up once since my party, and then you were oh please let's not start anything sorry i haven't been able to get up oftener but i've been taking work home you know how it is you know when you get busy with your dancing school oh i meant to tell you i'm through just through with vashkawaska and her horrid old school she's a cat and i don't believe she ever had anything to do with the russian ballet either what do you think she had the infantry to tell me she said i wasn't practicing and really trying to learn anything and i've been working myself into really my nerves were in such a shape i would have been in danger of a nervous breakdown if i had kept on toddykins told me she had a nervous breakdown and had me see her doctor such a dear dr sinclair so refined and sympathetic and he told me i was right in suspecting that nobody takes Vyshakoska seriously any more. And besides, I don't think much of all this symbolic dancing anyway. And at last, I've found what I really want to do. Oh, Carl, it's so wonderful. I'm studying ceramics with Miss Dietz. She's so wonderful and temperamental, and she has the dearest studio in Gramercy Park. Of course, I haven't made anything yet, but I know I'm going to like it so much. And Miss Dietz says I have a natural taste. For vases, and—' Huh? Oh, yes, vases, I get you. Don't be vulgar. I'm going to go down to her studio and work every other day, and she doesn't think you have to work like a scrub woman to succeed, like that horrid Vajonka did. Miss Dietz has a temperament herself, and, oh, Carl, she says that Gertrude isn't suited to me, and Gertie certainly isn't. And she calls me Eltruda. Don't you think that's a sweet name? Would you like to call me Eltruda sometimes? Look here, Gertie. I don't want to butt in, but I'm guessing that it looks to me as though one of these artistic grafters was working on you. What do you know about this Dietz person? Has she done anything worthwhile? And honestly, Gertie, by the way, I don't want to be brutal, but I don't think I could stand Eltruda. It sounds like Tottikins. Now, really, Carl? Wait a second. How do you know you've got what you call temperament? Go to it and good luck, if you can get away with it. But how do you know it isn't simply living in a flat and not having any work to do, except developing a temperament? Why don't you try working with Ray in his office? He's a mighty good businessman. This is just to suggest... Now, really, this is look here gertie the thing i've always admired about you is your wholesomeness and wholesome oh what a word as miss deets was saying just the other day it's as bad but you are wholesome gertie that is if you don't let new york turn your head and if you'd use your ability on a real job like helping ray or teaching yes or really sticking to your ceramics or dancing and leave the temperament business to those who can get away with it no wait I know I'm butting in. I know that people won't go and change their natures, because I ask them to. But did you see you, and Ray, and Adelaide, you are the friends I depend on, and I just so hate to see. Oh, Carl, dear, you might let me talk, said Gertie, in tones of maddening sweetness. As I think it over, I don't seem to recall that you've been an authority on temperament for so very long i seem to remember that you weren't so terribly wonderful in jirolaman i'm glad to be the first to honor what you've done in aviation but i don't know that it gives you the right to-never said it did carl insisted with fictitious good humor assume that you are an authority on temperament art i'm afraid that your head has been just a little turned by oh hell oh i'm sorry that just slipped it shouldn't have slipped you know i'm afraid it can't be passed over so easily gertie might have been a bustling school schoolteacher pleasantly bidding the dirty rakeson boy now go and wash the little hands carl said nothing he was bored he wished that he had not become entangled in their vague discussion of temperament even more brightly gertie announced i'm afraid you're not in a very good humor this afternoon i'm sorry that my plans don't Interest you, of course. I should be very temperamental if I expected you to apologize for cursing and swearing. So I think I'll just leave you here, and when you feel better— She was infuringly cheerful. I should be pleased to have you call me up. Goodbye, Carl. And I hope that your walk will do you good. She turned into a footpath, left him muttering in tones of youthful injury. Jiminy, I've done it now. He was in Jerolaman. A Victoria drove by with a dowager who did not seem to be humbly courting the best set in Jirolamon. A grin lightened Carl's face, he chuckled. By golly, Gertley handled it splendidly. I'm to call up and be humble and then, bing, the least I can do is to propose and be led to the altar and teach a Sunday school class at St. Orgel's for the rest of my life. Come hither, Hawk Erickson. Let us hold counsel. Here's the way Gertie will dope it out, I guess. Eltruda, I'll dine in solitary regret for saying hell. No. First I'm to walk downtown alone and busy repenting, and then I'll feed alone, and by eight o'clock I'll be so tired of myself that I'll call up and beg pretty. Rats. It's rotten mean to dope it out like that. But just the same me that have done what i've done worried to death over one accidental hell hey there you taxi grandly he rode through the park and in an unrepentant manner bowed to every pretty woman he saw to the disapproval of their silk-hatted escorts he forgot the existence of gertie cowles and the old home folks but he really could not afford a taxicab and he had to make up for it by economy at seven-thirty he gloomily entered Megal Eden's restaurant on forty-second street the least unbearable of the popular prices tables for ladies dens and slumped down at a table near the window there were few diners carl was much a stranger as the morning when he had first invaded new york to find work with an automobile company and he had passed this same restaurant still Was he a segregated stranger, despite the fact that two blocks away in the Aero Club, two famous aviators were agreeing that there had never been a more consistently excellent flight in America than Hawk Erickson's race from Chicago to New York. Carl considered the delights of the Cowles' flat, Ray's story about Plato and business and the sentimental things Gertie played on the guitar. He suddenly determined to go off someplace and fly an aeroplane as suddenly knew that he was not yet ready to return to the game. He read the evening telegram and cheerlessly peered out of the window at the gray snow veil which shrouded 42nd Street. As he finished his dessert and stirred his coffee, he stared into a streetcar stalled in a line of traffic outside. Within the car, seen through the snow mist, was a girl of twenty-two or three with satiny slim features and ash-blonde hair. She was radiant in white fox furs, Carl Crane to watch. He thought of the girl who, asking a direction before the Florida lunchroom in Chicago, had inspired him to become a chauffeur. The girl in the streetcar was listening to her companion, who was a dark-haired girl with humor and excitement about life in her face, well set up, not tall, in a smartly tailored coat of brown pony skin, and a small hat that was all lines and no trimming. Both of them seemed amused, possibly by the lofty melancholy of a traffic policeman beside the car, who raised his hand as though he had high ideals and a slight stomachache. The dark-haired girl tapped her round knees with the joy of being alive. The street car started. Carl was already losing in the city jungle the two acquaintances whom he had just made. The car stopped again, still blocked. Carl seized his coat, dropped a fifty-cent piece on the cashier's desk, did not wait for his 10 cent change ran across the street barely escaping a taxicab galloped around the end of the car swung up on the platform as he took his seat opposite the two girls he asked himself just what he expected to do now the girls were unaware of his existence and why had he hurried the car had not started again but he studied his unconscious conquest from behind his newspaper vastly content In the unnatural quiet of the stalled car, the girls were irreverently discussing George. He heard enough to know that they were of the rather smart, rather cultured class known as New Yorkers. They might be Russian-American princesses or social workers or ill-paid governesses or actresses or merely persons with one motor car and a useful papa in the family. But in any case, they were not the kind he could pick up. The tall girl of the ash-blonde hair seemed to be named Olive, being quite un-Olive in taint, while her livelier companion was apparently christened Ruth. Carl wearied of Olive's changeless beauty as quickly as he did of her silver-handled umbrella. She merely knew how to listen. But the less spectacular, less beautiful, less languorous, dark-haired Ruth, was born a good comrade. Her laughter marked her as one of the women whom earthquake and flood and childbearing cannot rob of a sense of humor. She would have the inside view, the sophisticated understanding, everything. The car was at last free of the traffic. It turned a corner and started northward. Carl studied the girls. Ruth was twenty-four, perhaps, or twenty-five. Not tall, slight enough to nestle, but strong and self-reliant. She had quantities of dark brown hair, crisp and glinty, though not sleek, with eyebrows noticeably dark and heavy. Her smile was made irresistible by her splendidly shining teeth, fairly large but close-set and white. And not only the corners of her eyes joined in her smile, but even her nose, her delicate, yes, piquant nose, which could quiver like a deer's, when she laughed. Carl noted Ruth had a trick of lifting her heavy lids quickly and surprising one with a glint of blue eyes where brown were expected her smooth healthy cream-colored skin was rosy with winter and looked as though in summer it would tan evenly without freckles her chin was soft but without a dimple and her jaws had a clean boyish leanness her smooth neck and delicious shoulders were curved not fatty but with youth and happiness they were square capable shoulders with no mid-victorian droop about them her waist was slender naturally not from stays her short but not fat fingers were the ideal instruments for the piano slim were her crossed feet and her unwrinkled pumps foolish footgear for a snowy evening seemed eager to dance there was no hint of the coquette about her physical appeal this ruth had but it was the allure of sunlight and meadows of tennis and boat, with bright canted sails not of boudoir nor garden dizzy scented with jasmine she was young and clean sweet without being sprinkled with pink sugar too young to know much about the world's furious struggle too happy to have realized its inevitable sordidness yet born a woman who would not always wish to be protected and round whom all her circle of life would center so carl inarticulately mused with the intentness which one gives to strangers in a quiet car till he laughed i feel as if i know her like a book the century's greatest problem was whether he would finally prefer her to olive if he knew them if he could speak to them but that was in new york more difficult than beating a policeman or getting acquainted with the mayor he would lose them already they were rising going out he couldn't let them be lost he glanced out of the window sprang up with an elaborate pretense that he had come to his own street he followed them out still conning headlines in the paper he gave absorption said plain that it all might be behold that he was a respectable citizen to whom it would never occur to pursue strange young women his new friends had been close to him in the illuminated car, but they were alien, unapproachable, when they stood on an unfamiliar street crossing, snow-dimmed and silent with night. He stared at a street sign and found that he was on Madison Avenue, up in the fifties. As they turned east on 50 Blanketh Street, he stopped under the street light, took an envelope from his pocket, and found on it the address of that dear old friend, living on 50 Blanket on whom he was going to call. This was to convince the policeman of the perfect purity of his intentions. The fact that there was no policeman nearer than the man on fixed post a block away did not lessen Carl's pleasure in the make-believe. He industriously inspected the house numbers as he followed the quickly moving girls, and frequently took out his watch. Nothing should make him late in calling on that dear old friend." not since adam glowered at the intruder eve has a man been so darkly uninterested in two charmers he stared clear through them he looked over their heads he observed objects on the other side of the street indignantly told the imaginary policeman who stopped him that he hadn't even seen the girls till this moment that he was the victim of a plot the block through which the cavalcade was passing was lined with shabby genteel brownstone houses with high stoops and haughty dark doors and dressmaker's placards or doctor's cards in the windows carl was puzzled the girls seemed rather too cheerful to belong to in this decayed and gloomy block which in the days when horsehair furniture and blankets had mattered had seemed imposing but the girls ascended the steps of a house which was typical of the row except that five motor-cars stood before it carl passing went up the steps of the next house and rang the bell what a funny place he heard one of the girls he judged that was ruth remark from the neighboring stoop looks exactly like aunt emma when she wears an alexandria bang do we go right up oughtn't we to ring it ought to be the craziest party anarchists a party eh thought carl ought to ring i suppose but yes there's sure to be all sorts of strange people at mrs hallett's said the voice of the other girl when the door closed upon both of them and an unabashed carl realized that a maid had opened the door of the house at which he himself had rung and was glaring at him as he craned over to view the next door stoop where does dr brown live here he stuttered no i don't The maid snapped, closing the door. Carl groaned. You don't. Dear old Brown. Not leave here, huh? What shall I do? In remarkably good spirits, he moved over in front of the house into which Ruth and Olive had gone. People were coming to the party in twos and threes. Yes, the men were in evening clothes. He had his information, swinging his stick, up at a level with his shoulder at each stride. He raced to Fifty-ninth Street and the nearest taxi stand. He was whirled to his room he literally threw his clothes off he shaved hastily singing will you come to the ball from the quaker girl and slipped into evening clothes and his suavest dress shirt seizing things all at once top hat muffler gloves pocketbook handkerchief cigarette case keys and hanging them about him as he fled down the decorous stairs he skipped to a taxicab and started again for fifty blanketh street at the house of the party he stopped to find on the letter-box in the entry the name mrs hallett mentioned by olive there was no such name he tried the inner door it opened he cheerily began to mount steep stairs which kept on for miles climbing among slate-colored walls past empty wall niches with towless plaster structures the hallways dim and high and snobbish and the dark old double doors scowled at him he boldly returned the scowl he could hear the increasing din of a talk-party coming from above. When he reached the top floor, he found a door open on a big room crowded in shrilly-chattering people in florid clothes. There was a hint of brassware and paintings and silken Turkish rugs, but no sight of Ruth or Olive. A maid was bobbing to him, Wren breathing. That way, please, at the end of the hall. He went meekly he did not dare to search the clamorous crowd for the girls as yet. He obediently added his hat and coat and stick to an uncomfortable-looking pile of wraps writhing on a bed in a small room that had a complete print of Sergeant's profits, a calendar, and an unimportant white rocker. It was time to go out and face the party, but he had stage fright. While climbing the stairs, he had believed that he was in touch with the two girls but now he was separated from them by a crowd further from them than when he had followed them down the unfriendly street and not till now did he quite grasp the fact that the hostess might not welcome him his glowing game was becoming very dull-toned he lighted a cigarette and listened to the beating surf of the talk in the other room another man came in like all the rest he gave up the brilliant idea of trying to find an unpreempted place for his precious newly ironed silk hat and resigningly dumped it on the bed he was a passable man with a gentlemanly mustache and good pumps carl knew that fact because he was comparing his own clothes and deciding that he had none the worst of it but he was relieved when the waxed mustache moved a couple of times and its owner said in a friendly way beastly jam may i trouble you for a match Carl followed him out to the hostess, a small, busy woman who made a business of being vivacious and letting the light catch the fringes of her gold hair, as she nodded. Carl nonchalantly shook hands with her bubbling, So afraid couldn't get here. My play. But at last. He was in a panic. But the hostess, instead of calling for the police, gushed, Oh am so glad you could come combining a kittenish mechanical smile for him with a glance over his shoulder at the temporary butler i want you to meet miss uh, moeller mr uh mr i knew you'd forget it carl was brotherly and protecting in his manner ericson oscar ericson oh of course how stupid of me miss moeller want you to meet mr oscar ericson you know so happy to meet you miss mm," said carl tremendously well-bred in manner can we possibly go over here and be clever in a corner do you think he had heard colonel haviland say this but his manner gave it no quotation marks presumably he talked to miss moeller about something usual the snow or the party or owen johnson's novels presumably miss Morrill had eyes to look into and banalities to look away from Presumably there was something in the room besides people and talk and rugs hung over the bookcases, but Carl never knew. He was looking for Ruth, did not see her. Within ten minutes he had maneuvered himself free of Miss Muller, and was searching for Ruth, his nerves quivering amazingly with the fear that she might already have gone. How would he ever find her? He could scarce ask the hostess, say, where's Ruth? She was nowhere in the fog of people in the big room, if he could even find Olive. Strolling, nodding to perfectly strange people who agreeably nodded back under the mistaken impression that they were glad to see him, he systematically checked up all the groups. Ruth was not among the punch-table devotees who were being humorous and amorous over cigarettes, not among the caustic wits exclusively assembled in a corner, not among the shy sisters aligned on the Davenport and wondering why they had come, not in the general maelstrom in the center of the room. He stopped calmly to greet the hostess again, remarking, "'You look so beautifully sophisticated tonight,' and listened suavely to her fluttering remarks. He was the picture of the cynical city-man, who has to be nowhere at no special time. But he was not cynical. He had to find Ruth.' He escaped, and between the main room and the dining room penetrated a small den filled with woody young men, old stories, cigarette smoke, and siphons. Then he charged into the dining room, where there were candles and plate, much like silver, and Ruth and Olive at the farther end. End of chapter 27